Remember him. Before the silver cord is severed. Or the golden bowl is broken. Before the pitcher is shattered at the spring or the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from. And the spirit returns to God who gave it. I see that the the heading for the talk this morning was um, the eternal reward. Now we all live eternally, don't we? We know that. Spiritually speaking, until we get a new body. And then those of us who know Jesus will be lowered from somewhere up there down to the renewed earth and we'll serve him in eternity on the renewed earth. Quite what we'll be doing, I haven't made my mind up yet. (laughs) But it's going to be good. It's going to be a place of righteousness, peace and joy. And and it's difficult to grasp that, isn't it, in the type of world in which we live. Because the Holy Spirit, the angelic realm, will be present with us. But there will be no demonic realm. There will be no tears, no crying, no weeping. As we know the end of the scripture. But that's interesting, this passage. The dust returns to the ground it came from, and dust. And pray, friends, you were dust. And we're all going to return to the ground from which we came. But the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And then it's God's judgment to decide where our spirits will actually go. That's quite a thought, isn't it? The eternal reward is that we go to be with him in his presence eternally. That's the eternal reward. The lack of reward is that we go out of his presence eternally. And my word, that is... I find find it difficult. I really do. But that is the truth of the issue from the scriptures. By the way, that comes from just at the end of Ecclesiastes. Just before we get into this morning's passage, there are a couple of um, verses I wanted to just quote to you from John's Gospel. They'll be helping us to reflect on this thought of the eternal reward. The first comes from Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he defines eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, the best thing to do is ask Jesus what he thinks, isn't it? And Jesus says, in beginning to pray, just before he goes to the cross, You granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you, God, have given him. So God gives people to Jesus. And I came to faith, the almighty God gave me to Jesus that he might grant eternal life to all those you, God, have given him, Jesus. Now this is eternal life. Here's our Lord's definition. 
that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So that's it. That's a straightforward definition of what eternal life is. To know God. Now we know him in measure when we come to him in this life. So eternal life begins in the here and now, doesn't it? We know him better in the age to come. But we know him now and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That was the first reference. The second reference comes from Jesus when he's talking to the woman at the well, who of course was a Samaritan lady. And he says to her in John chapter 4, 22, if you want the ref, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. In other words, they didn't know. They were foggy about things. Have you ever spoken to somebody who's foggy about things and hasn't got a clue? <laughs> Probably you have. You know, we're all struggling in any case. We, we struggle to really get to know the way in which we're headed better, to know God more fully, to, to divest ourselves of our fleshly um, temptations and desires, and to walk the way that Jesus wants us to walk. That's, that's a struggle worth having, ain't it? <laughs> it is. It's the best struggle we can have because it's, it's, it's good. It's always paying dividends. So Jesus says to the lady at the well, we worship, meaning Jews, we worship who we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and it's come already, if you like, it's come now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, we know the words well. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. Because when I am born again, get to know him, I am beginning a lifetime of worship. I can't worship God before I'm born again. I can have flashes, flashes of when I look at the stars or whatever else. But because worship is in the spirit, how can I possibly worship until my spirit comes alive in the spirit of God? I can sing some songs. I can sit in church. I can do all of that. But I cannot worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says the truth until he's within me. We go... The time has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit. See, our spirit, Ecclesiastes, will return to him, his spirit, and he'll decide where we're going. God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. So it seemed to me that what I was dealing with, what I was being challenged with, if I'm thinking about the eternal reward, is the issue between worship and idolatry. The issue between worship and idolatry. 
And that's what came to me from this morning's passage. So it's in Luke 18. The rich ruler. And I'm thinking along that heading, I'm thinking about the, the eternal reward and how to live in the good of this eternal reward in the here and now. There's a battle going on between worship and idolatry. And the Father seeks worshippers to worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what he's seeking. That's what he's looking for. Now, worship involves service. Worship isn't just coming this morning. Worship is 24-7. It's how I live. It's how I think. It's the words I speak. It's the amount of television I watch or don't watch. It's the time I get up in the morning. <laughs> worship. I've not been doing great since I've retired. You know, I've got my challenges. You've got yours. But let's worship. It's why it's good to preach occasionally. You preach yourself into to action. It helps. So the rich ruler. That's just the... I remember MTL saying... <laughs> that's the introduction. <laughs> A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy. He says. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replies, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left all that we had to follow you. One of the other versions in the the other Gospels, Peter said, what's going to be left for us? (laughs) Imagine Peter standing there listening to this. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age, now, and in the life to come, eternal life. So he touches there on eternal life, knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ whom he sent. This is eternal life. So we see this Ruler asking Jesus, he comes up to him and he addresses him as a good teacher. It's interesting because he's reading through the Gospels, the people that Jesus deals with individually, you know, the individuals that come up to him, mostly are very needy people who 
there's something in them that recognises who he is. Jesus, son of David, uh, have mercy on me. They, they recognise there is divinity about this man. How they do that, oh God, it, it's something that God gives them. They haven't been anywhere. They haven't heard anybody preaching. They've never read anything. They probably haven't read the Old Testament or any bit of it. They haven't looked at the Jewish law. But something about these people. You know, the Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman that we thought about just recently. They didn't know this stuff, but they recognised Godhood in Jesus. And they confessed it. They knew that as they spoke to him, he would speak out the activity of God in their lives. He would grant to them something of his wholeness, his fullness. They knew it. But this man addressed Jesus sort of theologically, if you like, academically almost. Good teacher. He knew he was a teacher. He knew he was good. But there wasn't that same sense of divinity here as he came to him. He just thought he'd ask the question and see what this good teacher said to him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call... So Jesus responds to him at that sort of a level. A sort of didactic academia. Why do you call me good? It's only God who's good. Jesus responds to him as he addresses Jesus. Why do you call me good? No one is good except the Father. You know the commandments. And he, he tells him, of course, seven of the Ten Commandments, which are all to do with how we relate to one another, how we relate to our neighbours, how we relate to other people, aren't they? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't do this, that, and the other, don't covet. And he just includes only your father and your mother. But he misses out the first three. Doesn't he? You shall have no gods before me. Don't make for yourselves any images, any idols of any other creature. Don't bow down to them or worship them. And of course, the making of idols and the worship of idols was something that was so common and still is, of course, particularly in the Middle East at that particular time. As soon as Israel was free, what did she do but erect a golden calf? It sounds ridiculous to us because it's not the sort of practice that we engage in. But still, anything that attracts us and diminishes our ability to worship God is in the nature of an idol. And this is the issue that Jesus is tackling here in this young man. Don't have any gods other than me, says God. It's the number one commandment. But in response to Jesus drawing out those seven commandments of loving one's neighbour, I've done all these since I was a boy, he says. I've been doing this. When Jesus said to him, you still lack one thing. He doesn't quote him the first three commandments. You lack one thing. 
Sell everything you have. Give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. If you read Mark's version of this, he says, beautiful, Jesus loved him. Now, he loves everybody. We know that. He loves me. He loves you. But there was something special about this young man that Jesus identified. And Mark just throws that in. Jesus loved him. And he invited him to join the group of disciples. And come and follow me. Be my disciple. Come and worship me. Worshippers and disciples, by the way, are pretty much the same thing. If I'm a worshipper, I'm a disciple. If I'm a disciple, I'm a worshipper. Come, follow me. That's how special it was. Jesus normally told folk, didn't he? Go back to your own village, go back into your own community, go tell your own neighbours. Don't come out to me. But for this man, come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. I had to reflect on that. <laughs> it stopped me. How many of us would be sad this morning if we had great wealth? <laughs> We're thinking about it. And of course, that was his, his history. You can't worship God or mammon. If we try to worship mammon, it will exclude our ability to worship God. And this is what was going on in the life of this, who we believe to be a fairly young man. He became very sad, the young man, because he was a man of great wealth. As I read that, I had to think of, of Job. Because here we have a man who's very sad because of his wealth. But Satan wanted to say to God about Job, he's only with you because you've prospered him. He's, he's only got a sort of religious front because he knows that you're the source of his blessing. Take that away and he'll deny you. And it's true, in the Old Testament, generally speaking, as we well know, if God was blessing you, if you were being obedient to him and you knew his reality and you were seeking to be a keeper of the law, it would result in your prosperity. It's different in the New Testament. Isn't it? It would usually result in your adversity. Because to follow Jesus, as he makes clear, ain't going to be easy. So it was prosperity in the Old Testament. If Israel was prospering, if, if she was knowing good times in her climate, in her agriculture, in her economy, it was because God was blessing her. How different the teaching of Jesus can make things. Generally speaking, it's not prosperity that... God gives to us. He wants to grow us up and he'll do that through adversity. So Job, the enemy, the enemy, he's speaking to God. You remember the introduction to the book of Job. 
He's speaking to God. And, and Job doesn't deny the Father, even though he allows Satan to come in and strip him of everything that, that makes up his prosperity, his family, his, his goods, his flocks. Strips him of all that. And Job says, the Lord has taken, the Lord has taken away. And he doesn't deny God. So Satan comes back. And he says, ah, strip from him his health. Take his health and he'll deny you. So God says, well, okay, do that. But you're not to take his life. And he strips Job of every item of physical health that he can know. And the man is in a pitiful state of being. We know the story. But Job says an interesting thing, doesn't he, as you read through his um, first speech. It's a long read, the book of Job, and it takes some patience to read through. But Job says, the thing I fear has come upon me, this devastation that I'm experiencing, I feared that. And it's happened to me. See, Job had a profound sense of religion. He had an awareness of God, but he lacked spiritual confidence. He was unconfident in what he owned. He was unconfident in the family around him who tended to do their own thing. And he lacked that sense of closeness with God that God had to give him. And we see the Father taking him through all of that. And we see him bringing him through. And by word, what a different man we have at the end. Once he's repented. And once he has seen the folly of him claiming to be innocent before God, which is what he did. He was claiming it is. His friends were telling him, you must have sinned to be in this condition. But you know, he knew he'd not actually sinned. He'd done nothing different. He was still seeking God in the way that he always had. He was still pious in the way he always had been. But when he repented, he just knew the, the, the folly of that before a holy God who came to meet with him. And you see, very, very, the Lord wanting to bring out the best in Job. And he does it very often for us through the pain which he allows to come into our lives. And if there's any measure of idolatry in there, he will deal with it. There's, there's a verse in, in Luke's Gospel here that is so, so much of a summary of, of Job's experience that I find it quite remarkable. Because Simon, just before uh, Peter, who of course is called Simon here, just before he denies Jesus three times, is asserting his ability to save the cause. The others might do that, Lord, but I won't. He's so confident. He's up front. He speaks what he feels and lets it out impetuously. Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to stitch. See, Satan's on the go again. And Jesus is not stopping him. Now, that's important to note. Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus 
doesn't stop him from going through the mill. He doesn't stop the enemy from just disillusioning Peter with himself. Because that's what needs to happen. I need to be disillusioned of myself. And sometimes the Lord will use the enemy to do it. He used the enemy, didn't he, to get Jesus onto the cross. Satan came into Judas. Satan was in those religious leaders who were seeking to execute him. But my word, the glory that came from the cross, and we've seen it this morning, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And when you have turned back, Jesus says to Peter, strengthen you. What did Job do at the end of his experience? He prayed for his friends. (laughs) He prayed for them. And Job went on to live for 200 years after that. And Job became a man who knew God second-hand before all the satanic pressure came upon him. But after all of that, he knew God first-hand. My word, Job was a worshipper. Job could minister Jesus. He knew that all his possessions were given to him of God. He knew that his family, he had another family, were given to him of God. He knew that he could pray for his friends in the power that God gave him. Simon, I pray for you that your faith won't fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. (laughs) Great, isn't it? Great. So we're thinking about the way the enemy wants to sow idolatry into our lives. But as God breaks that idolatry, he's forming us into be the worshippers he wants to form us. And so it goes on. In the last days of the age in which we're living, God will give Satan a free run. And many of the saints will die. Possibly I will die. Possibly you will die. But so long as we die with the name of Jesus on our lips, they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the words of their testimony. It doesn't matter. <laughs> we don't very often sing spiritual warfare songs. It seems to me, perhaps I've missed them, I don't know. But there's one we used to sing by a guy called Noel Richards, who was Gerald Coates, worship leader. More, a bit more my vintage, the 80s and 90s. Called to a battle. Heavenly war. Though we may struggle, victory is sure. Death will not triumph. Though we may die. Jesus has promised our eternal life. I like that. By the blood of the Lamb we will overcome. It was very popular in the mid-90s. Album he did called Thunder in the Skies. But it was great, great song of spiritual warfare and we need that in our guts don't we in these days what if there is what if there is war between America and Russia UK and NATO joining in with America Russia, China we 
might die. But the Spirit goes to God. <laughs> Eternal life consists in knowing God and in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. What the Lord wants to do now is to... Another hymn writer put it beautifully. He said this in one of his verses. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. You see, the work of Satan, God's always undoing the work of the enemy. He undid it in Job. He undid it in Peter. He's undoing it in me. He's undoing it in you. But he does it so that we can get rid of the idols and become those who worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. Now, this young man couldn't get rid of his idol. This is the sadness which we're looking at today. He couldn't do it. He was sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say it's impossible, it's hard. How hard. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There's a good description of that in Google. If you want to look it up, I'll give you that for homework because I didn't do it. But it's difficult. But it's not impossible. The Lord can use people with wealth. As long as they recognise, as Job came to recognise, that our wealth belongs and is given by him. And we sit on it very loosely. <laughs> Jesus replied, what's impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said, we've left all we had to follow you. I can always feel it sometimes with Peter. What's in this for us? Well, try me and find out. Try me and find out. Jesus said, if you read Matthew's account, when I'm sitting on my throne, you will be on thrones around me and you'll be judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I don't know whether Peter found that a bit too much at the time. I don't know how spiritual he's feeling. But he said, Jesus says, look, no one who's left home or anything, wives, brothers, children, for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life eternal life is this knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he sent now next week Simon will be looking at uh, the remainder of this chapter but it just struck me You've got this rich young man here, a ruler, he's described as by Luke. And he comes to Jesus, and he has everything that we would esteem that he needs. He's got recognition by society, he's got prestige in his lifestyle, he has plenty of wealth, and he's got his youth as well. There's nothing that he needs. And he met with Jesus, and he went away with nothing. Nothing. Just read on 
into the next bit of the chapter, we see blind Bartimaeus coming to Jesus, who came to him with nothing. He was blind. He was an outcast from society. He had a life to come that wasn't even worth living. He came to Jesus with nothing. And he went away with everything. <laughs> everything. Immediately, it says at the end of the chapter, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your kingdom is the perfect kingdom. It's ruled over by the perfect king. It's a kingdom of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a kingdom of truth. It's a kingdom of light and life and blessing. And we pray, Lord God, as we've looked at these things this morning, that we will as it were, sell all things in which to receive the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, says Jesus. And everything you need will be added to you. Yes, I'm, I'm going to have to teach you. I'm going to have to deal with you. I'm going to have to train you. Sometimes it will be hard. Sometimes I will allow the enemy scope in your life. It won't be Satan, by the way. It will be one of his minions. Satan can't deal with all of us. One of his minions. One of those wormwoods that uh, actually, although it's massively discomfortable for us at the time, as we work through and hold on to God by faith, we emerge as those who are better qualified to worship Jesus. We emerge as those who can overcome by the blood of the Lamb the word of our testimony. And we love not our lives, even to death. It's a battle, this side of heaven. Call to a battle. Heavenly war. Though we may struggle, victory is sure. Death will not triumph. Though we may die. Jesus has promised our eternal life. Amen.